Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. Want to know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform focused on hosting debates in the fairest way possible on topics including science, religion, and politics. And so want to let you know if it is your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more debates to come that we're very excited about and also want to let you know. No matter what walk of life you're from, folks, we really do hope you feel welcome. We're glad you're here. So I want to let you know a couple of things for today's debate. First, we are thrilled that you could say this kind of exhibition debate is kind of a charity event as well. So we are going to donate 100% of the Super Chats that come in today to save the children. So they put in efforts across the globe to help educate, feed, and also provide basic medical for children in poverty. And so this is a great cause. And so it's true. We might disagree on a lot, especially at a debate channel. There's always some kind of wrestle and tussle kind of debating going on. But this is something I'm confident we agree on. And so we appreciate you and appreciate all of your donations. Want to let you know that up front. So thanks so much, folks. Want to also give you a warning as both of our speakers very busy. As you know, uh, we're just honored to have them on and so we really want to respect their time we may not get to read every super chat and so i want to let you know that up front it will no matter what be donated to charity however we just based on time might not have time to read every single one so what i'm going to do is first i'm going to introduce dr friedman and then i will hand it over to brenton who is co-hosting and co-moderating today he will be introducing dr wolf i also want to let you know up front so Folks, we are very excited as uh, Brenton helped put this debate together. He helped us connect with both, both of our guests, and so we really appreciate that. And want to let you know, he is linked in the description. You can check out his channel where he has his own debate with Dr. Friedman, if you got to see that one before. So he's got a lot of other stuff going on. We encourage you to check it out. But want to let you know, before I introduce Dr. Dr. Friedman, I want to let you know that all folks, I want to say you can find each of our guests links in the description. So if you'd like to hear more or read more, you certainly can. We encourage you to go down to the script, the description box right now so that you can click on their links. And so first, going to, as mentioned, introduce Dr. Friedman, and then I will kick it over to Brenton, who will introduce Dr. Wolf and get us started with the actual debate. First, Dr. Friedman is an academic economist, recently re retired from Santa Clara University, Past positions, some in economics and some in law, have included VPI, UCLA, Tulane, Cornell, Chicago, and Stanford. His first book, The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, was published in 1973 and included a sketch of how a modern society with private property and trade and without government might function. His most recent book, Legal Systems, very different from ours, includes chapters describing real-world examples of past stateless societies. He or his other nonfiction books cover economics, the economic analysis of law, and the implications of future technology. 
He has also published three novels. Most of his articles and many of his books can be read for free from his webpage, davidfriedman.com. All the books, which by the way, that's linked in the description, and all the books are available on Amazon as print and Kindle, some also as audiobooks, if you're like me and you love audiobooks. He identifies politically as a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist. So thanks so much, Dr. Friedman. We are honored to have you. We'll kick it over now to Brenton, who will be introducing Dr. Wolf. Thanks, Brenton. Yeah, thank you, James. And I'm so happy to have helped to facilitate this uh, clash of the titans, each of them uh, appealing to a different part of my personality. So <laughs> I'm in particular really excited to watch this. Uh, Richard D. Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economics Update. His latest book is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and is available along with his other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism at democracyatwork.info. That's democracyatwork, one word, dot I-N-F-O. All right. Uh, both of our uh, speakers have agreed. We've got a great um, setup here. We, we're doing 20-minute openings, and uh, Dr. David Friedman will be uh, kicking us off. So, uh, Dr. David Friedman, your 20 minutes begins now. Thank you. In preparation for this debate, uh, I looked at some of uh, Professor Wolf's online material and concluded that we might have a problem because it looks to me as though what he mostly wants to defend under the label of socialism, I regard as one of the many variants within capitalism. That is worker co-ops, which as far as I can see are a kind of firm, just as a partnership is a firm or an ordinary corporation is a firm. Uh, and uh, I, as far as I can tell, what I call socialism, uh, which is the standard economic definition, uh, system of state ownership of the means, ownership and control of the means of production. I think he agrees that socialism, but that's the old fashioned kind of socialism. We've tried it. It didn't work. So he isn't interested in defending. It. But again, if he wants to defend that, we can argue about that. Uh, and if he wants to argue for workers co-ops, whether we call them capitalism or socialism, uh, I have nothing against them, but I don't think it's surprising that they're a fairly uncommon form of firm in capitalist systems. What I wanted to do was to start by explaining socialism and capitalism as I understand them and why I prefer capitalism to socialism. And I start with what economists call the coordination problem, which is a problem that all societies follow, face. Producing anything substantial, even as something as simple as a pencil, ultimately requires the cooperation of hundreds of thousands or millions of people. If you trace through everybody involved, that to have a pencil, you need wood. To have wood, you need chainsaws. To have chainsaws, you need steel and gasoline and a variety of other things. Uh, and somebody's got to grow the, the, the trees. And, and that involves a bunch of people. And if you trace back the causal links, even for a pencil and more obviously for an automobile, you realize that somehow, by some magical process, a very large number of people are coordinating their activity. 
to make sure that if someone wants, wants to build cars, because someone wants to drive cars, someone produces enough steel, which means someone has to produce enough iron ore and enough coal, and run down the, down the link. And your first instinct looking at that problem is we must all be dead, because how could you possibly coordinate that many people in order to make the society work? And there are basically two answers to that problem, uh, with many variants of both, of course. The obvious answer is hierarchy. The obvious answer is that you have someone who figures out what everybody should do and makes them do it. And that system works tolerably well for small groups of people, but it doesn't scale very well. That as you increase the size of the hierarchy, uh, the distance between the uh, CEO and the factory floor gets more and more layers of people, and it's harder for him to tell what people are doing or what they ought to be. The other and non-obvious solution, which is the one that does scale, is decentralized coordination under a system of more or less private property and voluntary trade. And again, there are lots of variants in detail on how it works, different societies, different things category, are categorized as private property. Some things are commons, the air, for example, or the English language, which we don't have intellectual property rights to. But for the most part, uh, you've got a pattern of decentralized coordination. And it's a little puzzling at first how it works. And the full explanation generally takes about a semester or two of price theory course. I could point people to one of my books that's intended as a substitute for that course. But the basic logic is pretty simple. Individuals are making decisions. They're deciding how much iron ore to dig, uh, how many books to write, whatever they're doing. And we want a system where when I make a decision, I, the decision it is in my interest to make is reasonably close to the decision it's in our interest to make. And how do you do it? You have a system where the individual who's making a decision bears the costs of that decision, receives the benefits of that decision, Hence, if benefits are larger than cost, it will be to his interest to make the decision. If not, he won't. That's the basic logic of decentralized coordination. And the way it works in a market society is that if I want to produce something, I need inputs. I need, if I am a freelance author, among other things, so I need a cover, uh, which requires an artist. So I've got to make a deal with the artist. I need various other uh, inputs for what I'm doing. If I'm making a car, I, I need steel. For all of those inputs on the market system, I've got to pay somebody else enough or offer him something else he values enough so that he's willing to do it. So that means that the cost to the worker of spending his time making my cover or spending his time mining iron ore or whatever he is doing has to be compensated in what I pay him. And therefore, that cost is transferred to me. When I produce something of value, whether a book or a car, the purchaser is then giving me a price which reflects the value to him of that something, so I'm receiving the benefit. So I'm receiving the benefit, paying the cost. Hence, if benefit is larger than cost, it's in my interest to do it. That's the basic logic of the system at the very simplified level. And there are lots of complications. In particular, there are a set of problems that economists describe as market failure, which are cases where for one reason or another, someone who makes a decision either can't collect the benefit of it, makes a radio broadcast, for example, and can't control who gets it, or some doesn't have to bear the costs or all of the costs. For example, air pollution is a sort of standard example, or have the, my neighbors who have loud parties late at, late at night and don't worry whether or not it's keeping, keeping me up. So it's not a perfect system. We don't have any perfect systems. 
but it nonetheless is a way of getting decentralized coordination where to at least first approximation, everybody makes, makes the right decision. Uh, and unfortunately, as far as I know, there is no better alternative. Real societies as we observe them contain both uh, hierarchical structures and decentralized uh, market structures. Uh, and if we think about the societies that we call capitalist, uh, they really have hierarchical structures of two different sorts. First, there are hierarchies within the market. So if you think of an ordinary firm, within the firm, you can think of a firm as a sort of a miniature socialist planned economy. Uh, that is to say that CEO of the firm gives instructions to people through a chain of, of, higher, of, of subordinates, and he then uh, coordinates everything theoretically, or he and his employees coordinate everything. Uh, but the firm is acting inside the market structure. So if the firm wants to get workers, it's got to offer those workers better terms than they can get anywhere else. If it wants inputs, it's got to pay the sellers those inputs, term, an amount that compensate them for either producing them or for not selling them to somebody else. So therefore, the firm in that system, though it's a hierarchical structure, is constrained by the fact that if hierarchy doesn't work, the firm breaks down, the firm goes bankrupt. And if hierarchy works, but for a slightly smaller firm, then slightly smaller firms drive out the larger. On the other hand, if the larger firm does better, you have the opposite happen. And for anybody who's really interested in the underlying economic theory, the classic articles by Ronald Coase called The Nature of the Firm. And if you want to read it as a book instead of an article, uh, it's a book by Oliver Williamson called Market and Hierarchy, which is I found very interesting when I read it. Uh, so that's one form of hierarchy in something like modern America. The other form of hierarchy, however, is government action. So that the public school systems are in fact a socialist institution, even though it sounds odd to call them that since we're used to thinking of socialism as a bad term and public schools are a very American institution. But in fact, they are literally socialist. That is a government owns and controls the means of production. And the government does not depend on selling its services to willing providers. On the contrary, uh, the government collects taxes to pay for it. It doesn't even depend on willing attendance, since to varying degrees in different states, children are required to go to that school or to that school or some other school that the government approves of. Similarly, the American military is a socialist institution in the literal sense that Tanks and the guns, which are their means of production, and the fighter planes and the bombers and the A-bombs all belong to the government. They are funded by, by, by tax money. So you actually have a mixture in a so-called capitalist system of hierarchical institutions within the market and of hierarchical institutions outside of the market. And if you think about real-world socialist systems, such as the Soviet Union or North Korea, uh, or East Germany, they also have a mixture of both hierarchical and non-hierarchical systems, that there is typically a black market, an illegal market. Quite often there are some legal markets as well with various restrictions imposed by the government. There are informal markets in favors, which are working sort of like that, although the fact that they're illegal and informal makes it harder to make them function very well. Uh, so you really have both forms in both. And it seems to me that insofar as I can make a useful definition between socialism and capitalism, it's socialism when the top level system that the other things are embedded in is the hierarchy. And it is capitalism when the top level system is the market. And I would like to see a perfectly, an entirely capitalist system 
in which everything was being produced by voluntary exchange. Uh, but uh, the real world systems, what you really have is a system like the US, which has a sizable socialist element, but where most of the economy is being run on the market basis. Uh, and a system like say the Soviet Union when, when, when it was a going concern or North Korea now, where there is certainly some implicit or explicit market arrangements, but the top level, everything else is embedded in uh, is a, a uh, is a hierarchical system depending not on voluntary exchange, uh, but on, on compulsion, basically. Uh, and within the market system, you can have a great variety of different ways in which people choose to arrange their lives. You could have workers' co-ops, you can have ordinary hierarchical firms, uh, you can have my own preferred system, which is everybody being a freelancer. Uh, that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm self-publishing my books. I get somebody to do the cover. Uh, I have my editor in-house because my daughter happens to be a freelance editor. Uh, and then I use Amazon to make the books available to other people. Uh, and you, you could have any of a variety of structures. Uh, law firms are, I suppose, in a certain sense, workers' co-ops, but only with a very small elite group of workers controlling them and everybody else is an, is an employee. Uh, uh, all of those. Uh, why is capitalism better? And ultimately the answer is that hierarchy doesn't scale, that hierarchy works for a family firm, it works for a football team more or less, but it doesn't work very well for a national economy. Uh, and in theory, in, in the capitalist system, you have hierarchical system only up to the size where it keeps working as judged by what people are willing to accept as payments for their inputs and what they're willing to pay for its outputs. In a socialist system, the hierarchy is not disciplined in that way. And people who support a socialist system mostly assume that it will be disciplined instead by political mechanisms, uh, by democracy in some societies, by a wise benevolent dictator in the, which some optimists at various times in history have believed in, uh, but by some political mechanism uh, or other. And the, uh, Political, the problem is, I was talking earlier about market failure. Market failure happens when individuals make decisions where they're not bearing most of the cost to receiving most of the benefits. That is the exception on the market system, although it occurs. It is the normal pattern in the political system. There is no political actor who is uh, either receiving all of the benefits of his action or paying a significant part of the cost. That if you think of the bottom level of democracy, which is the individual voter. If you cleverly, wisely study all issues and vote for the best guy, first, it'll probably have no effect because you're only one voter out of 100 million or so. But if it has an effect, the benefit is shared with the rest of the population of the country, you're getting almost none of it. If you are a judge and you make the wrong decision, uh, the costs go to somebody else. If you set a bad precedent, which could have enormous costs over a long period of time, you never find out and the costs go to other people. If you are a politician and you pass a tariff, the benefits of the tariff go to the industry that's protected, the costs of the tariff go to people who are buying its products at a higher price and to exporters who can't export as much because we're not importing as much, all of those are being imposed on other people. So we don't have any method, at least I don't know of any method, 
I don't think we've discovered any method by which you can use political mechanisms to get people to make the right decision. And almost always people who are arguing for doing something politically simply assume their conclusion. They say, let us have a government which does X. And what I want to do is to impose on the government, when we're thinking about it, exactly the same constraints I impose on the market. To say under what circumstances will political actors make the right decision or the wrong decision. And unless you've got a good reason to expect them to make the right decision, you have no business assuming that they will. Uh, so that's the problem with all of the proposals to use political action to fix the flaws of the market, which certainly exist, and that they simply take it for granted that the government actor who intervenes will intervene for the general good rather than in order to get reelected, in order to get bribes, or in order to promote those people he likes and not the people he doesn't like or whatever. Uh, the real world systems we observe, as I say, are all a mix. But we do have a good deal of evidence because we can observe multiple cases where you have what start out as very similar societies, one of which is much more capitalist and one of which much more socialist. Uh, and within our lifetime, the obvious pairs are East Germany and West Germany. And East Germany not only worked worse than West Germany, it worked so badly they had to build a wall with armed guards to keep people from losing. We have North Korea and South Korea. We have the contrast between Maoist China and Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, where Taiwan became a modern developed country with the kind of standard of living that you and I are used to. And China under Mao was a place where when things went wrong, 30 million people starved to death during the famine, during the Great Leap Forward. But we've got China actually gives us a second and perhaps equally interesting comparison, because all of those are parallels in space, two things that existed at the same time. But in the case of China, we also have the history of the period since Mao died, that when Mao died, China was a dirt poor country. Uh, the elite of the China Communist Party, who as far as I can tell were intelligent and well-intentioned people, finally had the opportunity to go outside of China and see what the rest of the world was like. And they discovered to their astonishment that with what they had been told was the best economic system in the world, socialism, China was an extraordinarily poor country in contrast to all of the countries around it that they were able, were able almost all, there was Vietnam, I guess, might have been in the same category, probably not, uh, that they were able to observe. Uh, and they being sent, we have the account of one uh, deputy of premier of China who returned from a visit to England and reported that he had found that a garbage collector in England had several times his income. And he concluded that England would be the perfect communist country if it only had a communist party running it. Uh, it, was, it was a shock to them. And since they were, as far as I can tell, on the whole, honest and well-intentioned people, they started experimenting and tinkering with the system and introducing various things. One, be a long talk if, if, if people were interested, uh, but one of the experiments was having little islands of capitalism inside their socialist system so they could study how capitalism works and figure out what the tricks were that they could adopt to make their system work better. And the islands of capitalism worked so well that the exception swallowed the rule. And by now, China is a little less capitalist than the US, a good deal less free than the US. It did not move to democracy. It is still 
a communist country politically. It still calls itself socialism with Chinese characteristics, but in fact, stuff is being openly bought and sold. If you go to Shanghai, it doesn't feel very much different from New York or, or Chicago. Uh, so I think those, uh, those experiments show us in a pretty striking fashion uh, that the more capitalist systems work a whole lot better than the more than the more socialist system. Now I'm in favor, as I said, of something still more capitalist. You can read my book from my webpage, or we could have another debate on that sometime, but that's not the subject here. I thought I would end by giving a quote on just how well capitalism works from a source that Professor Wolf may be familiar with. It's a description of the very early stages of capitalism. Uh, and the quote goes as follows. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing One of whole for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground, what earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor? That was written by Karl Marx in 1848, very early in the history of modern capitalism. We've done, gone further since then. In 1800, about 80% of the world lived in what we now define as extreme poverty, less than about $1.90 a day income. By 2016, it was down to 10%. That was not the result of socialism. It was the result in large part in the last stages of it, of China abandoning socialism, of India stopping to depend on five-year plans and switching to something at least a little closer to capitalism, uh, a set of changes in which the basic market structure often impeded by governments in lots of ways spread around the world. And I think if I've done that is time. My 20 minutes. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. David Friedman. And uh, we're going to move to Dr. Richard Wolf. You have 20 minutes starting now. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm struck listening to uh, Professor Friedman uh, and being at the moment of this election that it does appear that we do live on separate planets. So uh, the people of America can't seem to sort themselves out. So why should we expect ourselves to do any better than it? Uh, I don't recognize hardly anything in what Dr. Friedman has to say. Uh, and given that we've had a similar education and live in the same country over much the same period, uh, it tells you something about the society we live in. Uh, so let's begin and let me put my cards on the table. Uh, I don't like capitalism. I think the human race can do a lot better than capitalism, and I'm doing everything I can to move us along uh, in that process. Uh, so everybody should understand where I'm coming from. Uh, and along the way, I'll have some differences with uh, Dr. Friedman, and I'll mention those as we go along, and maybe folks can pick up on those later if they're interested. Let me begin by uh, dealing with the definition problem, because it is very fundamental. It may appear to Dr. Friedman or others that one can define socialism and it is what it is. Uh, that might be convenient, I, I don't know, but it is not a rendition that I recognize. Socialism, like everything else, changes over time and over space. 
And therefore, when you specify what you mean by socialism, you got to put a date and a place on it, or else you are fudging something that you ought not to fudge. Uh, let's really be quite clear about this. Uh, Karl Marx, if we're going to take him as the leading theorist of socialism, and he both was and is uh, that, uh, Karl Marx dies in 1883. That's a roughly 150 years ago. In the time since, Marxist ideas, Marxist notions of socialism, alongside other notions of socialism, since Marx is not the only one, have spread to every planet, to every country on this planet. There are Marxist organizations and socialist political movements of every kind and description in every country on this earth, legal, illegal, some governments, some not governmental, any intellectual movement, any idea that spreads that diversely in that short a time produces two things, a wide range of differing interpretations and the clash of those interpretations giving a dynamic to the notion of socialism that really ought to be present in conversations. So there is nothing bizarre or strange or unusual in the fact that what socialism meant to people in England early in the 19th century and what they meant at the later part of the 19th century in Germany and what they meant in Russia in 1917 and what they mean to us now are different. The system, the idea, has changed, changed with intellectual movements, changed with those efforts starting in 1917 to actually realize in a practical way. All of those things have changed socialism. So yes, what Dr. Friedman talks about was some people's idea of socialism sometimes and in some places. That's all, not in all times and not in all places and certainly not now. Listening to him is a little bit of a time warp for me because I happen to be involved in the socialist universe and I know how much it has changed in part because of what happened in the 20th century. And here I'm thinking mostly of the Soviet Union since that was the dominant attempt to realize uh, socialism in the 20th century. And it, from the beginning to the end, it runs the history of the Soviet Union runs that century. But socialism has gone on since then, as indeed capitalism and lots of other things have gone on. And at this point, what socialists are interested in, myself included, is really quite different from, but indebted to the history of, what it meant before. So for example, just to make it really clear that it matters, I don't think socialism is particularly about the government. I would remind you that Marx, who wrote in great detail about all aspects of capitalism, never wrote a book about the government, barely wrote at all about the government. It was on his to-do list when he died. He never got to it. You know why? Because it wasn't a priority. The issue of the government came up in a very particular way in socialism. It came up as a strategic idea. The socialists, as they became more and more important across the, the 19th century, began to debate, well, we're big now. We aren't a tiny group. We're growing, and we're growing fast. So we better have a strategy. How do we take society beyond capitalism? Because the one thing all socialists kind of agree on is that they really want to go beyond capitalism. They yearn to go beyond capitalism. 
and I'll come back to that in a moment. But they, they strategize that the way we're going to do it is, you see, socialism is something for the mass of the working class. And how we're going to get it is, well, let's see, what is the way that the mass of the working class might make social change? Well, let's see, we have suffrage in the Western world here in Europe, and we're moving towards universal suffrage. Aha! In universal suffrage, the majority votes and wins the election. And we, the working class, the employees of the system, we're the majority. So a clever strategic objective would be to get our people mobilized to utilize suffrage to grab hold of the state. And that will be an important step. That's all, a step giving us a greater chance to move society along than if we didn't have the state, especially because the capitalists seem to dominate the state most of the time. And both for offensive and defensive reasons, if we could snatch the state away from them, that would be a step forward. The interest in the state is not a part of the principle of socialism. It has to do with a strategic idea of how to move the society forward. Is it true that some societies grabbed the state, like the revolution in Russia, and then never made the transition, got stuck at that stage of the state? You bet. And that's a good criticism. But it's got nothing to do with socialism as an idea and as an alternative to capitalism. Let me take that thought a step further. Dr. Friedman talked about coordination. All societies that have a division of labor have to have coordination. If, you, if, if I don't do everything for myself, bake the bread, cook, cook the meals, make my shoes, and fiddle around with my transport, I have to rely on other people to do that. And everybody relying on everybody else requires coordination. And societies have had a division of labor for thousands of years and have come up with a whole host of different mechanisms of coordination. That really isn't all that interesting. Okay, that's a, a problem. And we can look at how different societies uh, solved it. But there is no one-to-one -one correspondence with, with the coordination problem and a market. A market is only one way among a whole bunch of solving the coordination problem. I also find it bizarre to think of capitalism and socialism in terms of governments and markets. And perhaps that's a key point to drive home. Slavery had markets. There's nothing unique about capitalism and markets. You remember American slavery? They bought and sold slaves. That's a market. They bought and sold cotton. That's a market. They bought and sold fill in the blank. So markets existed in slave society. Ditto in much of feudalism. Not always, some parts of feudalism solved the coordination problem in different ways, not market ways, but markets coexist. So capitalism is not the system of markets because those long predate capitalism. Well, then what is capitalism? I would argue Marx, whose contribution strikes me as pivotal here, had a pretty clear definition that there are different ways human beings have organized the production of goods and services. That's different from how they circulate. Markets are about exchange and circulation. But Marx's focus was on production. So here's three basic ways in modern history. Slaves is one way. You have a master and a slave. Masters is a small group. Slaves is a large group. Slaves do most of the work. 
Masters tell them what to do. Masters become rich and powerful. Slaves yearn for a better system. Then we have feudalism. How interesting, different, no slavery. Nobody can own anybody. But you have a small group of people again, lords, and a large group of people who do all the work, serfs. And one interesting thing is that the serfs yearn to do better. Now we come to capitalism. It's different. And that's what's interesting. How is it different? Nobody is anybody's slave. And nobody has a personal obligation to another person the way a serf and a lord did. Instead, a contract links the two. There's an employer, a small group of people who tend to become rich and powerful, and a mass of employees, a large group of people who don't. Notice the parallel in these three systems. You might have thought, if you were all excited about capitalism, you might have believed the theorists of the capitalist revolution that they were breaking from all of the earlier systems. They were breaking from slavery. They were breaking from feudalism. And in important ways, they did. But there were equally important ways in which they didn't. And one of them was this division of people in production into a small group of people with all the power and wealth telling all the others, the vast majority, what to do. A modern capitalist corporation is the most undemocratic institution I can imagine. You do what you are told, the majority. And if you don't, you lose your job and you lose your income. That's called compulsion. And that's the arrangement. And if you don't like what your employer tells you to do, well, you're free in capitalism and you can go and work for another one. Whoa, what an interesting system. Where does all this conversation about freedom come from or democracy for that matter? You know, if you really believed in democracy, the workplace is the first place you would have installed it. You know why? Because that's where adults spend most of their lives, working five out of seven days, the best hours of the day, they're on the job. Make the job democratic if you are believing in democracy, but you don't. You allow the owner or the shareholders or the major shareholders or the board of directors or some mix and match of all of them, a tiny minority to dictate, to dictate to everybody else. No one person, one vote, no democratic decision what to produce and what not. In the minutes that remain to me, two points that uh, Dr. Friedman made, and I, I understand I'm responding, but partly the order of events uh, arranges that. Uh, I find it several statements kind of remarkable. Uh, China, let's take China. This lovely story that once upon a time it was socialist and it didn't do well. And now that it's doing real well, well, it's capitalism. That's a story of somebody who wants to believe that socialism is ineffective and capitalism is good. That is really a stretch. For the last 25 years, China has outperformed the United States in terms of economic growth at a scale of roughly three to one. It's not even close. That's why they are the superpower. I don't know what it means to say a society is successful or not. But if you're a society that gives number one priority to economic growth and you have the record the Chinese do, well, that might explain their position in the world and the popularity of their government. That's not an endorsement of them, but it's a recognition of a basic fact. The fastest economic growth in the 20th century was achieved by the Soviet Union across two wars and a civil war 
and an agricultural collectivization, they still became the second biggest power, having been the most backward country in 1917 in the society. If economic growth is your goal, wow, we have a lot to learn. But those were governmental. So here, my final point. This dichotomy between the government and the private sector, I find bizarre. In slavery, we had next to each other, private slave enterprises, master and slaves, and the governments that existed from time to time in some slavery, they also had slaves. But nobody in, in my knowledge has ever suggested that it wasn't slavery because there was more or less of a balance between the private slave owners and the public ones. Ditto with feudalism. There were private feudalisms, and then there was the state, which also had serfs. So you had private feudalism and state feudalism. But we all deal with feudalism. And you know what? We don't give that much importance to the relationship between the state and the private. So we come to capitalism and we have a bizarre history. Suddenly, whether the capitalist employer is a private individual or a state entity becomes of enormous importance in a way it never was before. So I asked myself, why? We had a ready-made distinction between capitalism and what went before in terms of the master-slave dichotomy, the lord-serf dichotomy, and its differences and similarities with the employer-employee dichotomy. We don't need this weird discussion of the relative importance of the state. So my, my suspicion, that's all it is, is that that's a convenient deflector away from the core issue for those like me who see in the production relationship something that is fundamentally unacceptable, fundamentally undemocratic, and that which we can go beyond. Hence a socialism that emphasizes worker co-ops because that is the alternative to master-slave, lord-serf, or employer-employee because it finally brings democracy into the workplace, which I would argue was Marx's intent all along, at least in the sense that I make uh, of his thinking. Final point. Uh, my family is by origin German. German is my first language. I'm fluent in German. And I have studied German history all my life. Uh, I don't understand uh, what Dr. Friedman said uh, about Germany. East Germany was a backward rural part, an agrarian backwater. All capitalist development in Germany had taken place in the West. And when you cut that country in half at the end of World War II, you took the advanced industrial Western part and made it West Germany and an old rural Junker class, rural backward area. For communists, this is the reverse of the way things should have gone. And that has to be factored in to their different performances without, again, as with China, making this nice, neat story of capitalism good and socialism bad. For me, socialism is a radically democratic reorganization of production. Whether the worker co-ops use market mechanisms to deal with one another, interspersed with non-market mechanisms, and I agree with Dr. Friedman, it's usually a mix, is a much secondary question to the radical social transformation that would occur if socialists had their way and made the democratic worker co-op the core production organization. Happily, 
that is already present in the world. And for those of you that are interested, the most successful example is the Mondragon Corporation in Spain. The second most successful example is the 40% of the economy of Emilia Romagna, a province in Italy, where you can see how worker co-ops function and have functioned for many, many decades, so that the reality of them as a real alternative to capitalism is plentiful for anyone interested in looking at it. I'll stop there. Thank you. All right. And um, you had uh, two minutes left. Are you, do you want to keep going or do you want to yield that time? No, let me, let me keep going because being <coughs> been a, a mathematician before I became an economist, uh, I like to make this point uh, when these kind of issue arises. In mathematics, we, we have a concept called infinity. When we, when we really don't know, when things are so numerous, there's so many, we kind of signal it by taking the number eight and putting it over on its side and saying there's an infinity. Well, here's the problem. Every act of, the, of life, human life or any other, has an infinity of consequences. Those that we know and those that we don't. Those that happen in the present and those that happen in an unknowable future. Therefore, the notion that we can measure the benefits, that's the good outcomes, against the costs, that's the bad outcomes, is absurd because you can't measure an infinity, especially when parts of it are unknown, unconscious, and in the future. So One minute. the notion that we're going to measure the costs and benefits of anything is a conceit. We don't have that capacity. That's like saying we're going to fly over the Empire State Building. We're not going to do that no matter how long we practice. Not going to happen. And we know it. And we know from mathematically, we don't know what all the consequences are. Every act of an economic actor has consequences, costs they're not bearing or even know about, and benefits they're not bearing or even know about. Number two, whatever consequence you think what you're looking at had, I got news for you. Other influences also made that thing happen. You can't separate out what your object of analysis, what, what it contributed versus 800 other things. Therefore, you can't measure costs and benefits that way either. Bottom line, it's not an exception to the market that it has externalities. It's in the nice. nature of the market. It never can manage all of that, and it never did. All right. Thank you very much. Um, that was a wonderful 20-minute openings from both parties. And now uh, we're going to go for our 10-minute rebuttal, uh, first to Dr. David Friedman, and then we will return to Dr. Wolf for another 10 minutes. So, uh, David Friedman, you have 10 minutes starting now. Thank you. I noticed that uh, Dr. Wolf uh, spent 20 minutes without ever telling us what he means by socialism, other than it's good and it somehow has to do with worker democracy. Uh, but he did raise that seems to be an interesting question, uh, and that is uh, the question of whether uh, democracy is, a, is, is the good thing. And uh, there's a famous quote attributed to Churchill that democracy is the worst way, form of government ever invented by the mind of man, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. And people usually take that as an endorsement of democracy, but I take that as a critique of government. What it is saying is that the least bad way of running government works very badly. And I think that applies much more broadly, that I don't think democracy is the way you want to run an economy. 
the way you want to run an economy is what I have sometimes described as competitive dictatorship. That is to say, the way we run restaurants and hotels. I have no vote at all on what is on the menu of the restaurant, but I have an absolute vote on whether I'm the one who, who goes to it. Similarly, if you think about how an actual capitalist system, including the firms that Professor Wolf dislikes, actually works, those decisions are not really being made by the CEO. CEO can decide to produce something, but if the customers don't want to buy it, they don't buy it. And if he keeps making decisions the customers don't like, the, the result is that his company goes out of business or he gets fired. Uh, similarly, he can make decisions about the workers, but if the decisions are not offering the workers terms on which will, they're willing to work, he doesn't have any workers. That for some reason, Professor Wolf seems to be imagining that uh, the fact that in, if you don't reach an agreement with somebody in a voluntary trade, you don't make the trade amounts to compulsion. I'm curious as to whether Professor Wolf thinks that this debate should have been arranged by democracy. Uh, should the decision of whether or not he would come have been made by a vote of all of the people who might watch it, or should it have been made an absolute dictatorship by him, just as I had an absolute dictatorship on whether I came and the people running this had an absolute dictatorship on that. So I would have said that a system in which each person makes decisions for himself and you then get coordination by voluntary agreement among them, which of course means that anybody can prevent anybody else from doing something if that something depends on that particular person uh, cooperating. Uh, they, when, you, when you propose to a woman, she has an absolute monopoly. We don't have a democratic system for deciding who she, who she gets married uh, and we shouldn't. Uh, let me keep on, let me say a little bit about workers' co-ops, because they are, in fact, an interesting institution. And I don't know why Professor Wolf neglected to mention the largest, the largest scale real example, and that was communist Yugoslavia. Because in communist Yugoslavia, you had a largely market framework in which the firms were workers' co-ops rather than the kind of firm that Professor Wolf doesn't like. Uh, it worked, I would say, substantially better than uh, the centrally planned communism of the Soviet Union, uh, with the result that people in Yugoslavia were somewhat better off. Uh, but it worked substantially worse than capitalism in places like Italy and Austria, uh, which were nearby and similar. I noticed Professor Wolf wants to uh, eliminate my, ev my evidence for Germany, uh, because conveniently enough, he can explain it away, but he has to explain away all my other cases as well. Uh, and as far as I can tell, implicit in his initial talk is that the reason that he doesn't want to accept socialism as actually practiced as evidence is it worked badly. And therefore, he ignores the multiple cases where you had fairly close parallels. Taiwan was not a richer place than, than China. Singapore was a less rich. They had uh, the poor workers who fled there, essentially. Uh, and yet it did very much better than, than China under, under Mao. Uh, let me now say a little bit more about workers' co-ops. They're not a new idea. My favorite one is the Oneida Commune in the 19th century New York, which was a group family, a group marriage, as well as a commune. Uh, it worked for one generation and then collapsed when the founder, the charismatic founder, pulled out. Uh, one of his sons took over, restructured it as the Oneida Co Corporation, which to this day makes silverware. That was an example of, of, of an experiment. I discussed the idea of workers owning their firms back in my first book almost 50 years ago. I did some calculations on how 
how many years it would take for workers to choose to live at a very, very bare bone standard, sort of beans and rice standard, uh, in order to accumulate the money to buy their firms and concluded that it would be an awful lot easier than running a socialist revolution. And yet very, very few of them do. It happens occasionally, but not very often. I would like to point out that workers' co-ops are not an egalitarian system. They may be democratic within the co-op, but some workers' co-ops will be successful, some will be failure, and the result is you have an unequal distribution of income. Workers' co-ops may discover, I think usually do discover, that having democratic votes on anything, everything works very badly, and so they eventually democratically decide to appoint a manager who they can democratically remove if they, if they feel like it. Same system used by 18th century pirate ships. Incidentally, the captain was elected by majority vote and could be removed by majority vote, captain and quartermaster. It's one of the chapters of the book of mine that I published not too long ago. Uh, but uh, they usually will find that somebody is much better at managing than everybody else. And if they have a very good manager, they may also find they've got to pay him more than everybody else in order to keep some other co-op from hiring him away. So there is nothing particularly egalitarian about that system. It is indeed democratic at the level of the firm, but I would much prefer freedom to democracy, that democracy includes the possibility of 55% enslaving the other 45. Talking about slaves, uh, I should have made it more explicit in my explanation of capitalism that part of that private property system was that each individual belongs to himself. And I omitted that, and you are perfectly legitimate in calling me on on on, 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 on omitting that. So a private, so a capitalist, a, a slave system, like everything else, has some mix of capitalist and socialist elements. But the slavery itself is not part of a capitalist market because the slave owner doesn't have to take account of, of costs and benefits to the slave. Uh, however, a employer does have to take a, a account of costs and benefits to his employees because the employees have the option of working somewhere else. Uh, he has to take account of costs and benefits to the suppliers of his other inputs for essentially uh, the, the, same, the same reason. Uh, so what I observe is that uh, Professor Wolf wants to define away or explain away the massive evidence we have that socialism in the form it was actually advocated and practiced in the 20th century worked catastrophically badly. I should say he's wrong about the Soviet Union as it happens. The high growth rate of the Soviet Union was an artifact of the fact that the Soviet Union was controlling the statistics. We now know, if you actually observe, you must you ought to consider that Japan was as, cheap, was as poor as Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Japan, nonetheless, uh, it ended up a great deal richer than Russia by the time that communism collapsed. There were other countries. Uh, Taiwan was poorer probably than Russia at the beginning of the 20th century, and it ended up much richer at the end. So, and in fact, if you look at Russian economic growth in a 20 or 30 years before the communists took over, it was growing relatively rapidly. It was still quite a poor country. Uh, but the idea that the Soviet economic growth uh, was enormous, you know, maybe you made the mistake of reading Samuelson's textbook. As you may know, Samuelson, for edition after edition, claimed the Soviet Union was outgrowing the U.S. about two to one. Edition after edition, he had the date at which the lines would cross, at which the Soviet GNP would pass the U.S. GNP. And edition after edition, that year ste crept steadily ahead at about the rate at which time was passing, because in fact, the Soviet Union was not growing faster. 
uh, Samuelson was mistaken. He was observing that the Soviet Union invested a larger fraction of his GNP and ignoring the fact that it matters how you invest things, whether in things that actually work or, or, or don't work. Uh, I was also surprised a little by the claim that markets are not part of production because the way production One is minute. organized in a market system is indeed by the market. The GM does not have its own steel mills. It doesn't have, it probably doesn't have its own glass factories. Uh, it has to coordinate with the other people involved in that very elaborate productive activity. Uh, if, I don't know if uh, Professor Wolf as a socialist economist has or hasn't studied conventional price theory, but there really is a useful way in which markets provide signals of costs and benefits to people, and they're not perfect signals, but most of the costs that I impose when I do something are costs on the market that I've got to pay for, uh, and most of the benefits for most, not all things, are, are benefits on the market that I get paid for. Thank you. I think that probably covers uh, the point. Your turn. Right on the dot there. <laughs> all right, uh, and we are going to go over for a 10-minute rebuttal uh, from Dr. Richard Wolf. Okay, uh, again, we're talking, I believe, at cross purposes. The whole point of my mathematics was to explain that every economic act, every purchase, every investment, anything, has an infinity of consequences. You cannot know what they all are, you cannot measure them, and therefore a decision that the costs exceed the benefits or vice versa is made up nonsense. It has no mathematical content. Teaching people to do cost-benefit analysis requires that you do not explain to them the impossibility of what they're setting out to do. What you end up doing is selecting a few costs and a few benefits, because that's all anybody could do. And that's fine, as long as you don't imagine that anything is relevant other than your principle of selection, since what you left out could easily swamp or reverse whatever conclusion you drew from those you look at. There's no way out of that dilemma, and to repeat it uh, suggests that we're not debating anymore, that we're just repeating our positions. I love the story about the CEO who has to, who's governed by the market. Uh, one of the largest industries of modern capitalism is called advertising, and it is the attempt by the CEO to either create or manipulate or control the market that he is ostensibly responding to. Corporations long ago learned they have to work on both sides of the market, the supply and the demand, and precious few of them avoid both the opportunity and the obligation to do that. Therefore, to celebrate that what they do is governed by the market is an attempt to magically whisk away what the whole premise uh, of advertising is. And then again, this remarkable, it didn't work well. Uh, there's no universal standard of what works well. You have yours, I have mine. If your standard, and I was careful to say that repeatedly, if your standard is economic growth, going from poverty to a middle class to an upper class or upper income society, if economic growth is a key or dominant variable, then that's the way you measure that society if you have that standard. If you have a different standard, you measure it correspondingly differently. But to talk about something as successful or unsuccessful without being clear what your standard is or even why one should use that as a standard is bizarre. I was careful to suggest 
because it's of course relevant to most countries in the world, they put a high priority on economic growth. And the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China remain the two outstanding examples of rapid economic growth over the last century. You can diddle around with the statistics. For the last 25 years, I have every year read about how China's statistics are unreliable. Okay, I used to be a statistician. All statistics are unreliable. I'm sure theirs are unreliable too. But in fact, over time, with enough observations, you begin to get a sense of whether they were completely made up, whether they were exaggerated, which is the best you can do. The Soviet Union's development from 1917 to where it was in 1975 is extraordinary. If you realize it encompassed two world wars, mostly fought on Soviet territory, and the civil war and the revolution, the achievement becomes absolutely stunning. And the Chinese have done them one better. Whether you like or not like the Soviet Union has nothing to do with it. It has to do with recognizing that they set a priority, they committed their public and private resources, and they did really well. You're stuck with that. Doesn't have much to do with socialism, but you're stuck with that reality. As to not saying my definition, I thought I gave my definition. For me, socialism is a production system, a production system, a way of arranging for the factories, the offices, and the stores to be organized democratically. One person, one vote to decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that everybody has helped. That's a radically different way of organizing production from slavery, feudalism, or capitalism. And for me, that's what socialism is mostly about. It is also a a way to ground socialism so that whatever government does or does not appear temporarily or not has a control from below that makes it responsive to the people as a whole. They didn't do that in the Soviet Union. They didn't do it in China. Nor am I willing to be a Monday morning quarterback dismissing them, which is kind of silly as far as I can see. I expect that the early experiments in building socialism will have been experiments that teach people a great deal, both what to do and what not to do. Just like the early experiments in capitalism coming out of European feudalism included some that lasted weeks, some that lasted months and years before all the conditions were there to really make a social transition. Russia, China, Vietnam, Cuba, these are early experiments, how to do it, how to avoid problems, and we're learning, all of us. And part of what we've learned is that the macro focus, who owns the means of production, the focus on the government, lacks a micro foundation. And the transformation of the enterprise into a democratic institution is the kind of micro focus transition that will make socialism not only more effective, learning from its experience, but it will be more attractive because we all live in a society that has demonized a socialism that isn't there anymore. And therefore we aren't prepared, lucky for us, as a society to be quite so dismissive of a socialism that redefines things on a micro level for which the defense mechanisms in American society are badly underdeveloped. I'll stop there. 
All right. Uh, you have um, three and a half minutes left. Uh, do you want to yield that time? No, no, I won't, never want to yield any time. <laughs> let me, let me, let me. You need a market where you can sell me the time. No, no. The, here's the, the thing that for me is uh, astonishing. Uh, let me tell you about my education and socialism and communism and capitalism. Uh, I went to Harvard, as, as Dr. Friedman reminded me, we both did. Uh, I went to Harvard, and when I finished there, I went to Stanford. And I got a master's degree in economics at Stanford, and then I left there because the professor I went to study with died. And I finished my education at Yale, which is where I got my PhD. So I'm a poster boy for American elite education, aren't I? And throughout the 10 years that I spent in that Ivy League, my professors tried over and over again to persuade me of the very things that Dr. Friedman believes. They tried and they included some very good professors, no problem. Uh, they didn't succeed, as you can see. Uh, they didn't persuade me, they tried very hard. Uh, occasionally, and until I learned better, I would ask them questions about Marxism and socialism. Uh, and what I could see in their eyes was fear. They not only didn't answer my questions, they were so uncomfortable, since I liked a number of them, I had no interest in making them uncomfortable, so I, I stopped asking the questions. But I, I couldn't miss what was going on. They were afraid. They were afraid to go anywhere near these topics. The few that sometimes ventured there were dismissive in a way that was in, intellectually insulting, but I'll put it aside. They were afraid. I learned what the Cold War meant. In the 10 years of the Ivy League, only on one semester was I ever assigned one word of Karl Marx. That wasn't a balanced education. That was a fear-driven education. They had been won over by the Cold War, and they went to the extreme, the sad extreme, of thinking that the way you demonstrate your loyalty is by pretending that the criticism of capitalism articulated by an immense socialist literature isn't there. Only when I would go to the library did I discover all that was left out of my education. Very sad, but it is a basic shaper of the incompetence at the level of government that both One Dr. Minute. Freeman and I notice. Of course, they don't know how to manage these crises because they don't even have courses in economic business cycles anymore the way they once did. They have to pretend it's all under control. Very sad that the market will heal itself or that the government will come in with Keynesian mechanisms to fix it. No criticism of the system itself. Endless fixing, but never the daring that the system itself has to pass like every other system in the history of human economics. The belief that this one will last forever is bizarre. All right, and time. Thank you uh, both very much. That was incredible. Um, so we're going to go into, this is going to be a slightly shorter uh, open discussion than we normally have. Um, but uh, we're going to go into 10 minutes of open discussion where you can talk directly to each other. Please continue to be respectful. And uh, the 10 minutes are starting now. Yeah. Professor Wolf wanted to know what my standard was. It's not economic growth. My standard is human welfare. And the simplest measure of human welfare is which pe way people choose to move. 
And what we know is that when we had much more socialist and much more capitalist systems adjacent to them, the capitalist systems sometimes put up walls to keep people out, and the socialist systems put up walls to keep people in. That's a very simple measure. Similarly, I agree the statistics are often very hard to evaluate. Uh, and in the case of the Soviet Union, it eventually collapsed. And the simple measure for all of these systems is to look at the beginning point and the end point and see how they changed. And we know that at the point when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was much poorer than Japan, which had started out at a roughly similar level. It was something of a shock when the Japanese won the Battle of Tsushima Straits because everybody knew that Russia was stronger. Uh, that was at the beginning of the century. We know that at the point when China stopped being socialist, it had was still the same dirt poor it had been when it started being socialist, that China, China's economic growth occurred after it started moving away from socialism, and it has been very successful. But of course, it was catching up. It had the advantage that having done everything wrong for uh, a number of decades, uh, it now could learn a whole lot of better ways of doing things, that if you, you know, chose to do things badly enough, your growth rate would be very, very high when you stopped, uh, when you stopped uh, doing it. Uh, so, uh, and I was curious, by the way, you say you weren't assigned Marx. I wasn't either because I didn't take any economics courses. I've never taken courses in either of the fields that I teach you, that I've taught in as it happens, so, uh, that I don't. I don't much like the whole credentialism system that's gotten too common, uh, but uh, did do you have any courses in Ricardo? Ricardo was a slightly earlier than Marx. He had a much larger influence on modern economics. Uh, and my guess is that like other early 19th century economists, he didn't cover very much. Your perception, your point of the beating that we live in different worlds struck me, because you're right, uh, because we were Dr. both in the academic world and uh, I Dr. Friedman, really quickly, yeah. I just wanted to, um, just because we only have 10 minutes, I'm you've sorry. been talking about for I'm about sorry. two and a half, so I want to give Dr. Uh, Wolf give, a chance give, to respond. His turn, absolutely. I spent my time studying the Chinese economies. I, I, I'm at a loss of where you get your ideas from. The Chinese economy has an enormously important role given to the Communist Party and to the government. It has been an important role throughout the history since 1949. They achieved enormous economic growth, even in the early years after 1949. It depends, again, on how you measure and what you look at. If you understand what human welfare means, you will know that people understand it in very different ways. To measure human welfare by, by migration is a bizarre, and I don't know of anybody really who does such a thing. Uh, migration can be one, but it's a little bit like going to a doctor, having him look at your left ear and tell you you're fine. Uh, your left ear matters, but it's not an adequate description of what health you have, let alone what human welfare uh, you have performed. And, and again, as to the education, there is no excuse for the education we've had. I'm glad you didn't take any economics courses. I can assure you, you didn't miss much. It was an endless repetition of how wonderful markets are and how wonderful capitalism is. It wasn't an education. Let me just finish. It was a training in how to be a cheerleader for capitalism. That's what it was about. The, the questions, and not just by me, by other students that raised real difficulties were brushed aside. Usually, I guess, 
because they couldn't answer them, but sometimes because they just were afraid to go anywhere near there. And I think we have to understand that when we have a conversation, including a debate like this, that what we're doing is we're asking for something that has been celebrated crazily for 75 years to debate against something that has been demonized for 75 years. And it's gonna take a while before the terms of the conversation, the basis of a conversation can be erected. Otherwise we'll continue to do a bit of what we did tonight, which is talk past each other, which is a, a loss for all of us, including Dr. Friedman and myself, since if we had a bit more of a shared basis, we could probably teach each other something. That's certainly possible. Uh, I'd be perfectly interested if we had more time to just discuss the question of workers' co-ops, because I think there are real economic problems with them. They have some advantages as well. And you will observe that it's perfectly legal to have a workers' co-op in the U.S. It has been throughout. And nonetheless, most workers don't choose to organize themselves that way. And I think there are reasons. The vast majority of American workers have never expressed themselves on this subject, number one. Number, so there's no basis for this. Number two, whatever their status in the law, and believe me, it's very variable, particularly in this country, even from state to state. There are some states that don't recognize that they exist. There are other states that give them all kinds of rights and privileges having to do with American history. Number three, banks don't lend to worker co-ops because they don't understand how you make a loan and you don't have a, a corporate CEO to sign off on it. They don't want to do it. Insurance company. It's been difficult in this country for worker co-ops that exist all over the United States, by the way, right now, but it's been difficult for them to get anything like equal standing or equal footing with capitalist enterprises. On the other side of the coin, the, the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, which started in 1956, has 70 years or roughly of, of history. And in that history, it has outcompeted its capitalist competitors. It is now the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. It has demonstrated how you can scale worker co-ops and get a very big worker co-op as well. They had problems along the way, just as capitalist firms did. But there's a lot of history, a lot of reality. They're so successful in Mondragon that they have their own university. It's called the Mondragon University, where you can go and learn everything you want to know and more about worker co-ops. It's a viable democratic alternative to the capitalist, hierarchical, undemocratic firm. And when Dr. Friedman said that he saw it as the, the dictatorship part of it as preferable. I don't have anything more to add to that. That's the reason I'm opposed to it. And I think that the yearning of slaves to go better than slavery and of serfs to go better than feudalism is paralleled by the yearning, which is becoming more prominent in America now, of the mass of working people to get beyond capitalism and for pretty much parallel reasons. Going back for a moment to the question of how we judge how well off people are, I believe in revealed preference. I believe that you can discover people's values by the choices they make. And that somebody who has lived in a country knows much more than you do about what it's like. And the fact that people who lived in one country chose to move to another is pretty strong evidence that on the whole, the other country was, was better off. And the same thing applies uh, across. Uh, and I don't think that saying that it's just sort of an un unclear question how well systems worked. Uh, China under Mao had a famine where 30 million people died. That's the current estimate. 
Russia under Stalin had a deliberate famine in the Ukraine where some unknown but several million people starved to death. And that is not, I really don't think that, that it's sort of an open question, is that a good or a bad thing? And let I don't me, think it's let an me open tell you why. whether having people poor is better than having people rich. And we know that China under Mao, people were poor, and China when it yeah. started well, going- Well, we're coming down to the wire, so uh, please let right. uh, Dr. Wolf continue. Okay. Too many things to say. I, I, I find this game of numbers of dead people a remarkable reversion to what the Cold War was all about. During the 20th century, there were two world wars. They were fought about and by capitalist societies who went to war against each other, Germany and Britain and Italy and the United States and Britain, and they killed way more people than anything you just mentioned. Capitalism also achieved in the three centuries before today something called colonialism during which they slaughtered people on a scale that is stunning, looking for gold, for food, for raw materials, for cotton, this driven by the capitalist system. If I wanna add up dead people the way you do, it would be easy. And we could then compare using your metric of dead people, what these two systems have accomplished in the way of piles of dead people and you would lose that conversation, but I don't have it because it strikes me as bizarre, as does the notion of migration. There are lots of migrations going on in all kinds of directions. It's a very dangerous precedent, you said. There are now tens of thousands of Americans applying every day to go to Canada, to and Western And we are Europe. out of time. All right, I'll stop. All right, thank you. Um, all right, so that was a wonderful open discussion. We're going to go into five minutes closing, uh, we're, and we're going to start with Dr. David Friedman, and then Dr. Richard Wolf will be closing out the um, uh, his five minutes. So, David Friedman, uh, okay. you have five, you've got your five minutes now. Yes. Uh, let me say a little bit uh, about workers' co-ops because that's actually something where we maybe have some 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 common ground. Uh, the problems, workers' co-ops are certainly a workable system. They have existed in various forms at different times, but they have some significant disadvantages. One of them is it is harder for them to borrow money because it is harder for them to say to the lender the way a company that sells stock can do, if we end up cheating you in some way, you get to take over and, and throw out the CEO, which is the position of stockholders. Uh, they have a problem because if you have a workers' co-op where the firm in effect belongs to the workers. Any additional worker dilutes the value of what the individual workers have. So there is, judging by the Yugoslavia experience, some tendency to stay below the optimal employment size uh, for a firm uh, for, for that reason. Uh, and what, what Dr. Wolf is, is talking about as successes are successes within a market system. Uh, the story about his, his view of advertising, that somehow the CEO can decide what people want, reminds me of a real story, because I happened to overhear an argument between my father and the person who ran the garage where he got his car fixed. This was in New Hampshire, where we spent our summers, uh, over a new car that Ford had brought out. And the man my father was arguing with was saying, look, all they've got to do is spend enough money on, on, on advertising the car, and of course, people will buy it. And Professor Wolf may perhaps remember the Edsel, which was the car they were arguing about. 
It's certainly true that firms try to persuade people to buy their products, just as Professor Wolf has been trying to persuade people to buy his ideas, and I've been trying to persuade them to buy mine. But nonetheless, when they try to persuade people to buy something that they don't want to buy, they end up losing money. Uh, similarly, they can try to persuade workers to come to work for the firm, to some extent they do, but unless they offer terms that the workers uh, find acceptable, uh, they don't get workers. Uh, so the ultimate decision, and the idea that democracy is an inherently good thing, just democracy majority vote includes the possibility of 55% of the people deciding to enslave the other 45. Uh, that, that would still be democratic. So no, I don't want democracy. Uh, he, Professor Wolf seems to have missed my point about dictatorship, which was that competitive dictatorship, uh, which is the way restaurants are run, is a good system where it's possible because that means that some particular thing is controlled by somebody, but it interacts with everybody else on a voluntary basis and therefore has to provide other people terms they like. Professor Wolf's comments about uh, cost-benefit analysis and such sound to me like the old proof of the unworkability of conventional socialism back from the calculation debate, which he probably knows about back between World War I and World War II. And it is true, if you try to calculate from the top all of the costs and values and maximize, it doesn't work. That's one of the reasons why that version of socialism crashes. But the whole point of the market system, from an economist standpoint, is that prices give you actual signals of value. They aren't perfect signals, but they're signals. And if I choose to buy some hamburger at the store, it has lots of effects. But for reasons economists have worked out, most of those effects are reflected in the price I've got to pay. And most of the benefit is reflected in what I'm willing to pay. And this could, again, be a long talk. I have no idea how familiar Professor Wolf is with the economics that he rejects. But in general, I think we have certainly been living in a different world. Because when I went to Harvard, there was an orthodoxy, all right. And the orthodoxy was not capitalism. The orthodoxy was, he would, he, Professor Wolf might consider it capitalism. It was more or less Keynesian liberalism. Uh, I have a variety of stories uh, from, from that time. Uh, Goldwater got 19% of the student body voting for him because he was for a much more capitalist system than the rest. And my impression was that the people I interacted with didn't know the arguments for capitalism. They didn't, they didn't know arguments for socialism either, probably most of them. Uh, but it was not a system where anybody I One minute. would have been afraid of being considered to, to be a socialist. When I was a student, there was a Maoist group, an active Maoist group. I know because I argued with them. There were various other groups of that sort. And today, I think you would find that the number of Americans willing to label themselves socialist is considerably higher than the number willing to label themselves anarcho-capitalist. I don't feel scared either. Uh, and they even be larger than the number willing to label themselves libertarians. So socialism has been a live uh, minority view for a very long time. Uh, and Professor Wolf basically wants to explain away the, the evidence of uh, its failure when it was actually tried in a direct head-to-head -head calculation uh, on the grounds that his improved version, which doesn't seem to me to socialism, time. indeed better. Thank you. And we were going to give the last word to Professor Richard Wolf. Very good. No, the last um, word is the questioners. The last, the last things I think I wouldn't say without you know, wanting to repeat myself uh, yet, another, and yet another time. Um, the comparison of Taiwan and China is the equivalent of comparing a flea and an elephant. One has a 1.4 billion 
dollars and has been a pariah object of American uh, covert and overt hostility. The other one is the example the United States has propped up since day one to be an alternative, laughable as that is, to the mainland government. The notion that you're going to compare these two utterly differently globally situated economies uh, the way you do is, is really silly. Uh, so I'm not going to go there uh, beyond uh, saying it. Nobody at Harvard when I was there could talk about socialism. Not a, not a single one of my professors. The one who came closest was John Kenneth Galbraith, and he was afraid. He was at least honest enough to say that he was afraid. And so we left it since he was a good teacher and I didn't want to pursue it. But it was fear that drove all of that. And we're living with the consequences of, an, of a whole educational system for which the entire literature. That's why we had to begin today with explaining that socialism has moved on from the bit of a caricature of the government deciding everything. The government never in a position to decide everything. Then the caricature of democracy. The majority can enslave the minority. Every democracy has, as one of its conditions, writing the rules for how things are going to be worked out. And enslaving is a rule that you can decide you don't want. Otherwise, the CEO could enslave one of the workers. You lose your job or you become my slave. Oh, no, we say. That can't happen because there's some rule outside the enterprise that precludes it. Those rules are not only in capitalist systems, they would be in effect everywhere. The notion that democracy is going to be dismissed by a caricature like that is a sign that you don't want to deal with the reality of the alternative. Worker co-ops are more efficient. There's a professor of uh, business administration at Leeds University in England, uh, a woman named Virginie Perrotin, if you're interested. Follow her work. She systematically compares comparable enterprises, worker co-op organized here, capitalist hierarchical non-democratic over here. And she shows that the worker co-ops last longer, that the worker co-ops grow faster, and that the worker co-ops do better. Okay, it's one of the few examples of this kind of research, but there it is, and you're stuck with it. Why? Well, it isn't hard to understand. If worker co-ops function, and by the way, it's not about worker ownership. That's a different matter. To own something is different from how you organize the work in it. A worker co-op is when the workers become their own board of directors, whether they also own the enterprise or sell stocks or have other owners. We have all those as examples of how actual worker co-ops function. But the one thing common to all worker co-ops is the democratization of the workplace, the notion that since everyone at the workplace has to live with what decisions that are made there, they all have a right to participate in them. And I want to end by saying, notice in this conversation, that is the socialist like me, who's emphasizing the profound, profound importance of the democratic structure and the democratic impulse. And it's the celebrant of anarcho-capitalism for whom the democracy is pushed away. That's an important difference here and maybe one that you can take with you uh, when you think about all of this. And I'll stop there. Wonderful, right on the dot. And um, so uh, we are going to have a shorter Q&A than normal um, just because uh, uh, 
uh, I know Professor Wolf, he has a TV engagement immediately after this, so we're going to jump right into it. Uh, everyone, please do your best to keep your answers uh, as quick as possible. Uh, so first, uh, Sparta344, thank you for your super chat. Question for both. Can both panelists please comment on uh, the kibbutz system in Israel? Sure. The kibbutz system in Israel, rather like the Oneida commune I mentioned earlier, worked for one generation. Basically, it was a version of, uh, certainly it was done by people who thought of themselves as socialists, and it was, I think, socialist in Professor Wolf's sense, uh, but it worked only as long as you had enthusiastic people, rather like the Oneida commune, like a bunch of religious communes evidence for, and it was then succeeded by the Moshavim, which were a semi-market, uh, semi-private system, and mostly has lost, has lost people. People since essentially the second generation did not have the enthusiasm of founders, with the result that it has eventually withered away. My response would be very simple. Uh, in order to nurture a new and different system, there have to be the conditions for that to happen. You have to have in place the conditions. And that's what happened in feudalism with capitalism. That I mentioned before, the early efforts in capitalism withered and died or they lasted a generation or two because the conditions weren't there. In Spain in 1956, there were no conditions either, but the effort there was able to create the conditions. They had a certain protection being in a poor part of Spain. They were done within the framework of the Roman Catholic Church, which gave them perfection, uh, uh, protection. So they were able to get and tap conditions that allowed them to become what they are today, probably the most successful worker co-op family in the world in terms of their size, their scope, their range of activity. So you're observing in one case, Israel, conditions that were not conducive, and in another, conditions that were. The lesson to be drawn, which has been drawn, is that you pay attention to those conditions because they will determine, as by the way they do in Emilia-Romagna and Italy, they will determine how successful your uh, new and different way of organizing production can be. Wonderful. And now we're going to go on to the next super chat. Thank you, uh, Vaclav Miller, for your super chat. Uh, does Richard believe uh, that under socialism, worker co-ops should uh, operate in markets? What role should the state have if all firms are worker-owned, and would there still need to be state regulation? My guess is, at least in the early phases, that worker, a worker co-op-based economy, which is what I'm after, uh, would use a mixture of uh, market and non-market uh, systems of distribution uh, based on how they work, what their side effects are, and so on. Uh, and I would also assume, uh, since it has always been the case, that if they used market mechanisms as well as non-market mechanisms, that they would regulate them. Uh, the notion of an unregulated market is a utopian fantasy. And I, I'm not against utopian fantasies, but we've never had such a thing. You know, if you go back to Aristotle and Plato, they, they fought over the question of markets and they concluded that they're disruptive, they're bad for economic equality, and so they have to be regulated. That was their uh, resolution. Every actual market has had to have regulations because of the costs that they encountered when they tried not to do that. 
Wonderful. Um, uh, next super chat is from uh, Shirt Son. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Friedman. Uh, Dr. Friedman, if you the only way of voting is to go to a different business, how do you account for all of the businesses being bad or not worth uh, voting for? I'm not sure I would call it voting, but I would have said that if all of the restaurants are doing a bad job, then there ought to be a good opportunity for you to start a restaurant that does a good job. Uh, that that the question in general it doesn't make sense to assume an outcome and then analyze it as opposed to assuming a set of institutions then figuring out what outcomes they will produce or looking in the real world at what outcomes they they do produce and I observe that in the case of restaurants uh, where there there is no democratic process compelling people to have restaurants of various uh, cuisines or expensive ones and cheap ones, but I observe that, in fact, uh, the people who want to start restaurants find that it is in their interest to serve food people want to eat at a price people are willing to pay. If they didn't, the restaurant would not succeed. So I don't, I think, you know, in a sense that saying, you know, how does capitalism solve you if the world ends? Uh, it doesn't have a solution if the world ends, uh, unfortunately, neither does socialism. So if things are terrible, things are terrible. But the nice thing about capitalism is that on the evidence of the last several hundred years, it results in things being a whole lot less terrible than alternative systems. Excellent. Um, now, I think this is a question for both of you. This is a super chat. James W., thanks for your super chat. In an environment where each day fewer workers are needed than the prior day, aside from, the decline in aside from a decline in population, does the market have any non-socialist solutions to provide for people? The, this is an argument that people have been making for several hundred years, and somehow the mass unemployment that it predicts doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, over the history of the U.S., the number of people has increased by about two orders of magnitude, and the number of jobs has increased by about two orders of magnitude. During that time, there have been a few fairly short, brief, short periods when the two differed by as much as 10%. That's not the result of there being a fixed number of jobs and a fixed number of workers. That's a market equilibrium where if there are more jobs than workers, wages go up. If there are more workers than jobs, wages go down and similarly across all different specialties. Uh, and that will continue to happen. So uh, I see no particular reason if, if people become more productive, they have the option of either getting a higher wage per hour and working fewer hours, or if they like working, of, of, of needing to work more workers. If you look at what's happened, though, you know, a little over a century ago, roughly half the population of the U.S. was in farming. Now a couple of percent are. And yet we don't observe that 43% are unemployed. Uh, technological progress results in uh, in raise income incomes going up. It, it now, it benefits some people better than others. It's true. If you have the talents to be a Silicon Valley programmer, you will do a good deal better than if you have the talents to be a, a, a restaurant waiter. But if you look over time, uh, both uh, categories have generally gone up. Uh, I, again, I, I see this completely differently. I think the notion that we have no responsibility to the people that are displaced by technology is a very convenient way to let capitalism off the hook of one of its consequences. If we have technological advances because capitalists find it profitable to install them, which is why and when we have them, and that results in people losing their job, that's a cost associated with their technological advance, a cost they conveniently 
don't have to cover. They can just tell the person to go get lost, and he or she can suffer whatever psychological and other costs are associated for an indefinite length of time until another capitalist looking to make profit might find it profitable to hire them, and they pick up all the costs of the in-between. That's a system designed to benefit capitalists. From the point of view of society, it is irrational. That unemployed person continues to consume, but because he or she is unemployed, they don't contribute. They just withdraw goods and services without being able to do what they want, which is have a job. If we had a properly functioning economy, it wouldn't allow that kind of irrationality. It would have a menu of jobs that people who were losing a job in one place could automatically select another. And all of that could be worked out in a way that would be more humane, more decent, but then that would be socialism with an attitude towards working people that a capitalist is unlikely uh, to enjoy. Wonderful. Uh, so this is from uh, Stars Over Stalingrad. Thank you for your uh, super chat. This is for Dr. Friedman. Dr. Friedman, uh, have you read uh, Thomas Sowell's new book on charter schools, and what do you think of charter schools in general? I have not read that book. I've read one of Sowell's books, Ethnic America, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, Sowell, uh, well, that would be another long discussion. Uh, and I've looked at one of his other books that I found depressing because it was convincing me of something I didn't want to believe, namely that the people who disagreed with me were bad people and not just disagreeing. Uh, but he's certainly a bright guy. But no, I don't. I think in general, I would prefer a system of competitive private schools, which is why I'd rather shift to a voucher system. Uh, and I do not know how well charter, I don't know enough about charter schools to have an opinion on how well they work. My impression is they work a little better than ordinary schools, but that's just a just a guess from casual casual information. Uh, but if it's a good book, maybe I should read it. Great. Uh, this is a super chat, uh, I believe, for, for uh, Professor Wolf um, from Old School Egyptian. Thank you for your super chat. Does Marxism disregard the importance of family and national pride? Uh, well, first of all, Marxism is an immensity. I mean, as I said in my talk, it's a, it's a point, it's a set of ideas and interpretations that varies across the globe and across the last 150 years. So any sentence that has the word Marxism as a singular and then attaches adjectives or descriptives to it is, is fooling you or is done out of ignorance. So are there Marxists who have devoted themselves to the questions of national identity? Answer, absolutely. Are there Marxists who have devoted themselves to analyzing the family and the relationships among people in families and the relationship of the family to the larger economy? The answer is also yes, there is an immense literature in all of these topics. And the reason it isn't on the tip of your tongue or you haven't encountered it is again, the same legacy of the Cold War. There'll be lots of sections of the library about nationality and lots about the family, but you'll have to work a little bit to find the Marxists and the socialists uh, among them. Uh, you might be interested, if, you're, if you want to, to look at a remarkable pamphlet written actually by Marx's colleague Frederick Engels way back in the middle of the 19th century that has prompted an enormous literature ever since. It's a short pamphlet. It's called The Origins 
of the family, private property, and the state. And it tries to explain how these institutions arose before and then changed in capitalism. But it'll give you right at the beginning the enormous importance that Marx and Engels assigned to the family, to the, to the nationality, and so on. And it has continued to be an object of Marxist work ever since. Wonderful. Uh, question for uh, Dr. Friedman. If I am a starving person in capitalism, do I truly have an uncoerced choice to work for food or not? Is this not a form of forced uh, labor on threat of death? Uh, thank you, Dale Wilson, for your super chat. Yeah, that's an interesting question. If I, I, I'm sorry, if I could interrupt, I have another engagement. I just, I didn't want to just sign off. I want to thank you all, including Dr. Friedman. I appreciate the opportunity to have this sort of debate. Uh, I wish I didn't have to go, but I do. But if you want to do this once again in the future, please know that I'd be glad to participate. Thank you so much. We're pleased to have you. It was a true pleasure, Dr. Wolf. Thank you. Let me try to answer that that question if I can. Uh, I think most of us make a distinction between costs that other people get by our action and by our inaction. And I guess the clearest case is something just a little short of starvation that some of us have experienced, which is where the woman you want to marry doesn't want to marry you. And you can say that that's a sort of compulsion and that if she says, here are the terms uh, you have to agree to that she's compelling you because losing the person you're in love with feels almost as bad as starvation, though. I admit I've never been starved, so I don't. Maybe I'm mistaken, but nonetheless, I don't feel as though she's compelling you because she belongs to her. Similarly, uh, if somebody has food that he's legitimately gotten, say food he's grown himself, and someone else is hungry and is starving to death, and says, "Give me that food," and the first person says, "I will do that only if you do X, Y, and Z," I suppose. Certainly, it feels like compulsion from the hungry person, but it is not, I think, compulsion in a morally relevant sense because people don't belong to each other. And therefore, if I have grown food, uh, you are certainly entitled to ask for it. But you're entitled to get it only if we can reach a mutually uh, mutual agreement. And I think that's true in general. That, that the question I didn't get to ask uh, Dr. Wolf, which I was curious about, was how his workers' co-ops coordinated with each other, if not through the market. Because if a workers' co-op has what we need in order for our workers' co-op to survive, does their charging for us amount to for it amount to compulsion? So, yeah, you know, no, I think you could certainly have situations in which people had only bad alternatives, but I don't think that the person who is offering the least bad alternative of those, which is the person with the food offering a job in your example, can really be counted as somebody who's injured someone or has exploited him or has has has, has compelled him. Thanks so much. I think, pardon my interruption, Brenton, just because we uh, do want to respect the speaker's time and because perhaps, no guarantees, folks, maybe we'll get to have our guests on again. We hope to, as this has been an absolutely, uh, this is, I, I'm just, it's uh, hard to put it into words how enjoyable this has been and how special this has been. So we want to say a huge thank you before we wrap up. I want to say first, thanks so much to Dr. Wolf and Dr. Friedman, our guest speakers. It's been a true pleasure. They're linked in the description, folks. So if you'd like to hear more from them, I encourage you. 
please do click on their links, which are in the description. And also want to give a huge thanks to Brenton Langle, as Brenton has actually helped us connect with the speakers in order to help this get set up. And so we really do appreciate that. He's linked in the description. And there you can find his, his own past debate with Dr. Friedman. And so it's been a true pleasure. I want to say thanks, folks, for your donations to the cause. Very excited that during this stream... I think it had a number up there. Oh, yeah. So it's over 100 bucks, 143 as of right now. So thanks so, mo- so much for those donations to Save the Children. And I'm sorry we didn't get to every question, but do want to say thanks for all of those questions. We got through most, I think, and we really appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We're excited as we do have another upcoming debate. This one's coming up this Saturday. I think most of our guests here would enjoy it. We'll have Dr. Ben back with us. He'll be debating K Fellows, and that should be a controversial and juicy one. So we hope we see you there. If you want a reminder, hit that subscribe button. And with that, I want to say one last thank you and goodbye to our guests. Thank you, Dr. Friedman. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you, Brent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if um, you guys, uh, if you do want to see uh, an after, keep an eye on my channel because uh, we should have uh, David Friedman and uh, Professor Wolf on my channel uh, shortly after this in the next few days, which I'm hoping for. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And folks, we hope you have a great rest of your day or night, depending on where you are. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And we will see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.